This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome Dan Weaver to the program. How you doing, Dan? Very good, Bob. Dan Weaver is president of Historic Amsterdam League, author of a bi-weekly column on history for the Amsterdam, New York Recorder, and owner of The Bookhound, a bookstore and online store. He's also a trustee of Old Fort Johnson in Fort Johnson, New York, and Old Fort Johnson, one of Sir William Johnson's colonial manor homes here in the upstate of New York. Well, tell us about William Johnson, his letters, and what you found there. Well, Sir William Johnson's letters encompass a lot of material. In fact, there are 14 volumes that the state of New York has published over the years, many, many years, um, and they total somewhere around 15,000 pages of material. And also some of his letters appear in the Documentary History of New York, four-volume uh, set that the state published, and they also appear in documents relative to the uh, colonial history of the state of New York, which is another massive set of 15 volumes. Some of his letters appear in there, and the letters that appear in those books do not appear in Sir William Johnson's papers. And then uh, another 14 letters or so were discovered later on and published in a uh, in addition of New York State History uh, Quarterly. So he corresponded throughout his life with numerous uh, important individuals, mostly a lot of them were uh, individuals in England, but, but also in New York, in, in, uh, uh, in, in the United States or the colonies, I, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. and in Canada. Right. Uh, so he, he pretty much corresponded with anybody of note during during his lifetime. It is amazing how those, well, amazing to me, how these colonial leaders or people of that era wrote so much. Where did they find the time? But of course, they weren't fooling around with Facebook or anything either. So That's true. And they <laughs> also had secretaries who did, they dictated the letters too, for the most part. Uh, Guy Johnson, his son-in-law, often you'll see letters of, of Sir Williams, and it will say, written in the hand handwriting of, of, of Guy Johnson. Mm. And you took it upon yourself, did you not, to read all of the William Johnson letters? I, I'm in the process. I haven't done it all, done it all yet. Um, but, yeah, I thought, you know, we dip into his letters a lot, but what about reading them, them through, all of them? And, of course, it, it's a monumental task and also a little boring at times. And, and I have to admit, there's times when I get to a letter, I kind of skim through it because it's just not that interesting. Right. And, and maybe we should say, I mean, who, who was William Johnson? Well, Sir William Johnson was the, eventually he became the superintendent of Indian affairs for the Northern Division uh, for the uh, British Crown. And he was a very, very important figure in colonial history, dying one year before the American Revolution, and he was became a baronet or baron following uh, the French and Indian War for his service in the French and Indian War, which during which he was wounded. Mm-hmm. Now, let's get to the discovery that you made in in the, in the letters. Um, you found a, a letter that uh, may indeed change his, history. I don't know. Maybe it'll right. change well, history. 
Yeah, in a, in a minor way, it's it's not a major thing. But uh, as I was reading a letter, I was reading a letter from Dr. Richard Shuckberg, who happened to work in Sir William Johnson's Indian Department for quite some time, and and knew Johnson real well. Uh, I came across a letter in which Shuckberg sent a pair of eyeglasses or spectacles, as they were often called back then, to Sir William Johnson. And I'm reading it, and he's describing these eyeglasses to Sir William Johnson. He said something to the effect, when you get them, you know, don't be surprised by the crack in them. That, that's not an accident. That's not an accidental crack. That crack was put there by the optician. And there's a word missing, but essentially he's saying that uh, the light between the upper part of the glasses and the lower part of the glasses is refracted differently. The word refracted, all you have is ED. The rest of the word is missing, mm-hmm. but it's pretty certain that's the word refracted. And even if we don't know that's, that it's the word refracted, it's very clear that he's describing a pair of bifocals and telling Sir William, you know, don't, don't think these glasses have been broken. They're not broken glasses. This is the way they're <laughs> meant to be. Uh, and... Uh, history tells us, or uh, somewhat, sort of, that it was Benjamin Franklin who uh, created bifocals for the first time, but this was long before uh, Franklin talked about it. Well, yeah, Franklin first wrote about bifocals in 1784. There is a letter that appeared somewhat earlier that may indicate that Franklin had ordered a pair of bifocals from uh, an optician. But Johnson's letter appears 16 years before Franklin first mentioned bifocals. So really, when you get right down to it, it seems to me we don't really quite know who invented bifocals. We don't really know quite who was the first person to wear them. But what we have with Sir William Johnson's letter of 1768, to my knowledge, and I've done a tremendous amount of research on this, is we have the first mention or first description of bifocals, the first uh, use of bifocals by an individual. Hmm. So, Did Ben Franklin claim to have developed this technique? Or no, the, no. No, he didn't. Uh, people put words in his mouth, you might say. When In one of his letters, he refers to them as the invention of bifocals, or as he called them, double spectacles or double eyeglasses. Mm-hmm. He didn't say my uh, invention. Now, there are many historians and biographers refer to a letter of, of George Watley's to uh, Ben Franklin in which he refers to them as your invention. Uh, that letter is quoted often in biographies. However, I researched and found that letter, and it's a mistranscription you might say, mm-hmm. somebody transcribed the letter wrong, because according to the letter itself, it doesn't say your invention, it says your mention, M-E-N-T-I-O-N. <laughs> okay. So it looks like somebody transcribed it wrong at one point, and people picked up on that, and they have continued to quote that as uh, George Watley believing that the that bifocals were, sir, I mean, were Ben Franklin's invention. And so Franklin himself never claimed it. But some historians have written that or said that. Yes, they yeah. have. And the thing is about Ben Franklin, all of Ben Franklin's inventions, he wanted to get them out there where people would make use of them. Uh, and so if he had invented 
by Fogels, he would have been the one to, you know, shout to the rooftops about this great invention of his, and he would have wanted to to get get them out to people. In fact, with regular eyeglasses, he was uh, very good about disseminating information about them. In fact, he sent his sister a whole series of lenses because it was difficult in those days. You didn't have opticians like you have today, an optometrist and mm-hmm. ophthalmologist and so on, to the same degree. So what he did when he was over in, I believe it was when he was in England, he sent his sister a whole series of lenses, he sent her uh, spectacles with a whole series of lenses, and then he told her, what you have to do is keep trying a uh, different lens until you find the one that works. Hmm. And then he said, you keep those. And then keep the ones that are stronger than that, than that, and then the ones that are not as strong as that, you can then give to somebody else. Okay. <clears throat> so you're preparing for your own diminishing sight and then helping another person. Right. Because, and, and he did this because there, there, was no, there was no real easy way to have your eyesight tested by anyone to determine what lens you had. So they would have different powers of lenses. Just like when you go into the, well, I don't know, uh, department store or, or Dollar Tree or something, they have reading glasses, they'll have, you know, uh, different p- powers of reading glasses, sure. 1 and 1.5 and 2 and 2.5. Well, this is what he sent to his sister, a whole series of, I believe, 32 different lenses and, so that she could find the ones that, that, that fit her right and gave her the best eyesight. But in any event, th- this uh, 1768 letter to Sir William Johnson, uh, well, I don't know, documents that these gla- uh, bifocals were around a lot earlier maybe than we thought. Right, right. And about Dr. Schuckberg, you said that he he's the one that's writing to Johnson. Um, he uh, was a doc, you know, he treated people, right? I mean, he was a medical right. doctor. Yes. And he worked for the, Johnson uh, in in the colonies. But where did he, where did he live? And, and wasn't he known, or I have it here in the article you wrote, uh, he, he was known for uh, coining the phrase Yankee Doodle, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he actually wrote the, the words to the first version of Yankee Doodle Dandy. The actual music to it was uh, a well-known uh, music. They, they often did that back in that day, including even in hymnals and churches. They used the same melody over and over for a variety of songs. So he didn't write the actual music, but he wrote the lyrics. He was the first one to write the lyrics because he was stationed in Fort Cralo and Rensselaer as a doctor, you know, in the British military. And he saw these troops from New England there, and they were, he thought, so poorly trained and disciplined, and their marching and so on was so bad that he kind of wrote this song, uh, the lyrics to the song, making fun of them. However, during the Revolution, the Americans took that song and turned it on its head and used it. It kind of became a badge of courage or, you know, honor to be okay. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Why do you think it took so long to, to find the bifocal letter? Well, I just think that it, the, the mass of Sir William Johnson's papers, it just it, it's unbelievable. 15,000, I... I I, I estimate at least 15,000 pages, maybe more. It could be 20,000. Uh, I don't know that anyone, maybe somebody has, has sat down and, <laughs> and read through his letters. The other thing is 
because Sir William Johnson died before the revolution, his, um, you might say his reputation was uh, damaged somewhat in the United States, and there just hasn't been as much interest in him as there maybe should be. There is among upstate New York historians, there is among colonial historians quite an interest in Sir William Johnson. I think there's been some renewed interest in Sir William Johnson with with books that have come out. Uh, the Irish uh, author, I forget his name, uh, came out with one in the last few years. Oh, Fintan O'Toole, which is a very good book on Sir William Johnson. And it's, there's been some renewed interest in Johnson, but Johnson's reputation, unlike Franklin, just is not as great in America, and I don't think as many scholars study Johnson. Yeah, right. Martin. You know, definitely not as many study Johnson as they do Franklin. So Franklin's letters, I'm sure, have all been poured over all his material, whereas I think Johnson's letters may still have many uh, things in them that we haven't discovered, maybe not anything major, but right. you know, my, minor things like this. And you also... So f- go ahead. That, well, here's a guy in the Mohawk Valley in 1768, which was on the frontier, and yet he's got this modern, really modern invention, uh, uh, um, bifocals. Yeah. But that also, you know, when you when you look at the Johnsons, Sir William Johnson, his son-in-laws, Guy Johnson and Daniel Klaus, and his son, John Johnson, they were pretty much on top of the most recent in- inventions. And they, you know, because of their correspondence with, with uh, London and with, you know, John going over there in the 1760s to visit, they kept up on the latest things. In fact, Daniel Klaus, in his estate in the West End of Amsterdam, he had a number of modern things. One thing he had, he had a fountain in his garden, and this was in a time when you didn't have electricity and you didn't have uh, gas-powered mm-hmm. pumps and things like that. He had a fountain that operated somehow using maybe gravity. I'm not sure, but he had a fountain that actually spouted up in his garden, and it's described by one of the people who visited his place and so these guys were on top of of the more more recent things although it's clear from dr shuckberg that johnson was not familiar with bifocals but Mm -hmm. he became familiar with this uh sending of them to him by dr shuckberg how was uh, daniel klaus related to the johnsons daniel klaus married one of uh sir william johnson's daughters Uh. Yeah. Okay. We're talking with uh, Dan Weaver on the Historian's Podcast. More with Dan in just a moment. We depend on your contributions of financial support to keep going with the Historian's Podcast. Please make a donation online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017 or send a donation in the mail. Make the check out to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, one two three zero two, and thank you very much. We're joined by Dan Weaver on the Historian's uh, Podcast, talking with uh, Dan about his find of an overlooked letter to Sir William Johnson in 1768, describing bifocal eyeglasses six, 16 years before Ben Franklin first uh, mentioned them. Uh, you also note that Franklin and Johnson correspondent, right? Yeah, they didn't correspond a lot. Actually, he corresponded more with Franklin's son, William. And William, of course, turned out to be a loyalist and remained loyal to Great Britain, which 
which his father wasn't happy about, but it's uh, the way things turned out. And so, but but Johnson also met Franklin in Albany in 1756 at the Albany Congress, which was a very important Congress and was kind of the forerunner of the Continental Congress. And during the Albany Congress, they came up with the Albany Plan of Union, which was never put in place, but it was meant to uh, unify the 13 colonies. And it was the first step towards unifying the colonies. And it lasted, I think, I believe it lasted about three weeks in which uh, both Johnson and Ben Franklin and Ben Franklin's son, William Franklin, were all delegates to this Congress. So... Mm -hmm. Um, now, they weren't, may not have seen each other every day, but they saw each other uh, quite a bit during that Congress. So they sat every day for hours, and then sometimes they broke up into committees. Mm -hmm. So Johnson and Franklin were definitely well aware of each other. And wasn't it at that conference that, that Franklin uh, suggested that the union that was to be created would follow the model of the Iroquois nations? Or is That's, that... that is what I've heard. I've never, I've not researched that myself, but I have, I have heard that. Mm. So. Now, if people wanted to know more about your, uh, you, you did a column on the bifocal letter, if you would call it that, uh, in Sir William Johnson's papers, and that was uh, in the Recorder newspaper, correct? Right. Yes. And so maybe you can find that online and and so on. Yeah, Amsterdam Recorder. I'm 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 hoping to expand the paper because, as you know yourself, as someone who writes a column, you're limited by a certain number of words. And so I'm hoping to write. Well, I'm, I've already been working on. It. I've got a long, much longer piece where I'm able to include more information than I was able to include in the article because John Fenno who was a famous newspaper man in New York, he uh, saw Franklin a year before Franklin died, and he wrote a letter to his wife, and he talked about his hour-long visit with Franklin, which is quite, quite interesting. Franklin was still very much uh, an alert person. And he talked to Franklin about his eyeglasses because he noticed that they looked different. Now, it's, it's quite uh, obvious from this letter that John Fennell was not aware of bifocals, even in 1789, mm -hmm. and even though he was a, a person who lived in a very urban setting in New York City and was on top of the latest news. So he asked John, he asked uh, Franklin about the eyeglasses, and Franklin explained to him, you know, that they were, that they were bifocals or, or double spectacles, whatever he called them. And he had said he had been wearing eyeglasses for 50 years. Now, if you read Fennell's letter to his wife, it appears that he understood Franklin to say that he also had been wearing bifocals all those years. Hmm. But it doesn't make any sense because that would have put bifocals back into the 1730s. Franklin never mentions bifocals until 1784, and we know that all of Franklin's inventions he wanted them to get out there to benefit people. He didn't, uh, mm. you know, he, he might have made money on, on them, but he didn't, uh, most of them he didn't patent. All he was concerned about was them getting out there and benefiting people, whether it was his stove, Franklin stove, or whatever. So, so why would he wait to 1784 to mention them if, if he had been wearing them all those years? Mm -hmm. Also, uh, Sir William Johnson would have seen them on him in 
the Albany Congress if he'd been wearing bifocals uh, uh, in the, mm. er, much earlier. I've and, been I've been wearing them myself for a number of years. <laughs> oh, me too. I've been wearing them most of my life. Now, I, I actually I I got them I think in eleventh grade. Really? Yes, and then. Well, my eyes somehow improved for a while, so I didn't have them for many years. And then I went back to them maybe in my 40s. But by then they had come up with the no-line bifocals yep, yep, no or line. the progressive lenses. Well, now that I've had surgery to remove my cataracts and put in um, artificial lenses, I only need reading glasses. Well, that's great. However, reading glasses are a pain because if you look out through them, everything's blurred. If you look down to read, everything's fine. But then if you look out, then everything's blurred. So I got a pair of prescription reading glasses and I didn't want to pay the extra money to have progressive lenses or no line. So I got the regular bifocal and the top part of them is basically clear glass. Right. I I, I thought that's where you were going. Yeah. yeah, And the bottom part is for reading and I've adjusted to them having gone from progressive lenses back to bifocals, I've been able to adjust to them fine, you know. So so I'm still using bifocals, which is a big improvement. As Ben Franklin said, before he had bifocals, he had two pair of glasses, and he, it was annoying. Uh, he used the word troublesome. It was troublesome because you had to take them off yeah. when you wanted to read something, then take those off and put the other pair on when you wanted to look out uh, at a distance. Sure. Dan Weaver uh, with us. Uh, Dan, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, is a president of Historic Amsterdam League in uh, this year of 2017. The league's done a lot of stuff this year, Dan. You must be uh, pleased with that. Yes, I, yes, I am. We have done a lot. And, and the reason we've been able to do a mm. lot is I believe strongly in mm. getting as many people involved as possible. And I also don't believe the president or the officer should do most of the work. Um, I believe the president's job is to oversee. So what I've tried to do is everything we do is to find a volunteer chairperson. And what's what that's done is spread the work out, and we've been able to do a lot more. In fact, I've probably uh, bit off a little more than we can chew because we, we want to do two coloring books because we're really concerned about there not being enough young people interested in local history. So Rob von Hasseling is Hasseling, our city historian, is going to chair a, a committee to produce a primer-like coloring book of Amsterdam's history for K through two. I will be chairing a committee to do a coloring book and possibly have some games and things in it too for grades three to five. If I could just interject, I really think that's a good idea. I honestly hadn't maybe heard about that specifically that uh, Historic Amsterdam League was doing it. But I remember, and it didn't happen a lot, but I, I remember specifically being at a uh, one of my book signings and this young girl, I mean like 10, 11-year-old girl came up to me and she was asking me this and that about about what was in the book. And I said, gee, you, you read the book? Yes, I'm interested. And and I think the manager of the store said, well, you know, Bob, you should do a, a children's book. And that's, I, I really think that that would be a good idea because people buy books for children, do they not? They do. And um, Jackie Murphy, with the help of Sandy Arnold, did a book for the history of Montgomery County for children that occasionally I see. I don't know if they still sell it new or not, but we're looking to do something for 
just the history of Amsterdam, we have an illustrator who's volunteered to do the one for grades three to five, and she sent us an illustration of the abolitionist movement in Amsterdam, which also mentions slavery, that there was slavery here as well. And it's excellent, excellent illustration. So she's going to be illustrating the book. And we're hoping to find ways of maybe getting sponsors who would pay to, so we can get some of the books into the schools. We've, we'll probably sell the books, but also we'd like to get them into the schools if possible, if we can make arrangements to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. One other topic I wanted to bring up is, I know you've been involved, but there others as well, in this effort to preserve uh, Guy Park Manor, which is right. the oldest building in, in Amsterdam. Is it now that yes, still exists? Is. Yes. Yeah, um, Norm uh, from uh, Mohawk Country in Fort Plain. No, Norm Norm Moreland, yes. Right. He's the one that came up with the idea of a Guy Park Restoration Committee. So uh, some members of the Historic Amsterdam League and the Daughters of the American Revolution and uh, Fort Plain Museum and Mohawk Country and so on, we've gotten together to... To uh, the idea, you know, the, the, the building is supposed to be restored. That's not really the issue, although it's taking a lot longer than, and most of us wish it was happening quicker. But our concern is for it to be turned back into a historic site again, because for at least a 20-year period, I would say, it was not a historic site. It had offices in it, and, and of course, during its last incarnation, the while the Elwood Museum was in it and unfortunately flooded during the storms in 2011. But we'd like to see it return to a historic site, which would give us one more historic site for people to stop and visit when they come to the area. Mm -hmm. And the other idea is, which we did not come up with, but was part of the New York Rising Committee uh, that Andrew Cuomo set up uh, to, to, to try to mitigate flood damage in the area, one of the things was to create a path, a walking path, bike path combination along the north shore of the Mohawk River from the Overlook Bridge, the pedestrian bridge, down to Guy Park Manor. And that would serve two purposes. One purpose would be to stabilize the bank of the river so that when you had high water or flooding, the the, the bank would not wash away mm-hmm. and the other of course would be to provide this recreational path now if that path united the mohawk valley gateway overlook bridge with guy Park manor it's like a chain you know uh, uh mm-hmm. connected with two jewels on the end of it one on each end but if people were to walk down to guy park manor and find it a place with offices and they couldn't even go inside and look at it, it you know it would be kind of disappointing so if you made it a historic site, it would serve many purposes. One, people get down there, they'd rest for a few minutes, maybe go in and look at, and, and see some of our colonial history. Mm-hmm. And, and two, it's, it'd just be provide another, another site. Uh, and it, it's a loyalist site, really. I mean, originally it was a home of a loyalist. And you have an awful lot of loyalist tourists come down here from Canada. Yes, they, they do. I know they come to that conference they hold it, sure. uh, every year. So, so that would give them that plus um, Old Fort Johnson plus Johnson Hall. Here you have three buildings associated with Sir William Johnson and with the, with the Loyalist movement, and it just would be a great 
tourist attraction, we believe. All right. Well, we're just about out of time, uh, Dan Weaver. I thank you uh, very much for joining us. And maybe we'll look for more on the bifocal story as time goes on. And we expect to hear uh, more from Historic Amsterdam League. You can find the league online. Uh, just uh, enter the name Historic Amsterdam League and they'll take you to their uh, website. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. And I'm Bob Cudmore.